Section 2 of The Theory of Moral Sentiments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ariadna Solovyova. The Theory of Moral Sentiments by Adam Smith. Part 1 of the Propriety of Action, consisting of three sections. Section 1 of the Sense of Propriety. Chapter 4. The Same Subject Continued. We may judge of the propriety or impropriety of the sentiments of another person by their correspondence or disagreement with our own, upon two different occasions. Either, first, when the objects which excite them are considered without any peculiar relation, either to ourselves or to the person whose sentiments we judge of, or, secondly, when they are considered as peculiarly affecting one or other of us. 1. With regard to those objects which are considered without any peculiar relation, either to ourselves or to the person whose sentiments we judge of, wherever his sentiments entirely correspond with our own, we ascribe to him the qualities of taste and good judgment. The beauty of a plain, the greatness of a mountain, the ornaments of a building, the expression of a picture, the composition of a discourse, the conduct of a third person, the proportions of different quantities and numbers, the various appearances which the great machine of the universe is perpetually exhibiting, with the secret wheels and springs which product them, all the general subjects of science and taste are what we and our companion regard as having no peculiar relation to either of us. We both look at them from the same point of view, and we have no occasion for sympathy, or for that imaginary change of situation from which it arises, in order to produce, with regard to these, the most perfect harmony of sentiments and affections. If notwithstanding we are often differently affected, it arises either from the different degrees of attention which our different habits of life allow us to give easily to the several parts of those complex objects, or from the different degrees of natural acuteness in the faculty of the mind to which they are addressed. When the sentiments of our companion coincide with our own in things of this kind, which are obvious and easy, and in which perhaps we never found a single person who differed from us, though we no doubt must approve of them, yet he seems to deserve no praise or admiration on account of them. But when they not only coincide with our own, but lead and direct our own, when informing them he appears to have attended to many things which we had overlooked, and to have adjusted them to all the various circumstances of their objects, we not only approve of them, but wonder and are surprised at their uncommon and unexpected acuteness and comprehensiveness and he appears to deserve a very high degree of admiration and applause. For approbation, heightened by wonder and surprise, constitutes the sentiment which is properly called admiration, and of which applause is the natural expression. The decision of the man who judges that exquisite beauty is preferable to the grossest deformity, or that twice two are equal to four, must certainly be approved of by all the world, but will not surely be much admired. It is the acute and delicate discernment of the man of taste who distinguishes the minute and scarce perceptible differences of beauty and deformity, 
It is the comprehensive accuracy of the experienced mathematician who unravels with ease the most intricate and perplexed proportions. It is the great leader in science and taste, the man who directs and conducts our own sentiments, the extent and superior justness of whose talents astonish us with wonder and surprise, who excites our admiration and seems to deserve our applause. And upon this foundation is grounded the greater part of the praise which is bestowed upon what are called the intellectual virtues. The utility of those qualities, it may be thought, is what first recommends them to us. And no doubt the consideration of this, when we come to attend to it, gives them a new value. Originally, however, we approve of another man's judgment, not as something useful, but as right, as accurate, as agreeable to truth and reality. And it is evident we attribute those qualities to it for no other reason but because we find that it agrees with our own. Taste, in the same manner, is originally approved of not as useful, but as just, as delicate, and as precisely suited to its object. The idea of the utility of all qualities of this kind is plainly an afterthought, and not what first recommends them to our approbation. 2. With regard to those objects which affect in a particular manner either ourselves or the person whose sentiments we judge of, it is at once more difficult to preserve this harmony and correspondence, and at the same time vastly more important. My companion does not naturally look upon the misfortune that has befallen me, or the injury that has been done me, from the same point of view in which I consider them. They affect me much more nearly. We do not view them from the same station as we do a picture, or a poem, or a system of philosophy, and are therefore apt to be very differently affected by them. But I can much more easily overlook the want of this correspondence of sentiments with regard to such indifferent objects as concern neither me nor my companion than with regard to what interests me so much as the misfortune that has befallen me or the injury that has been done me. Though you despise that picture or that poem or even that system of philosophy which I admire, there is little danger of our quarreling upon that account. Neither of us can reasonably be much interested about them. They ought all of them to be matters of great indifference to us both, so that though our opinions may be opposite, our affections may still be very nearly the same. But it is quite otherwise with regard to those objects by which either you or I are particularly affected. Though your ju judgments in matters of speculation, though your sentiments in matters of taste are quite opposite to mine, I can easily overlook this opposition. And if I have any degree of temper... I may still find some entertainment in your conversation, even upon those very subjects. But if you have either no fellow feeling for the misfortunes I have met with, or none that bears any proportion to the grief which distracts me, or if you have either no indignation at the injuries I have suffered, or none that bears any proportion to the resentment which transports me, we can no longer converse upon these subjects. We become intolerable to one another. I can neither support your company, nor you mine. You are confounded at my violence and passion, and I am enraged at your cold insensibility and want of feeling. In all such cases that there may be some correspondence of sentiments between the spectator and the person principally concerned, 
the spectator must first of all endeavor as much as he can to put himself in the situation of the other and to bring home to himself every little circumstance of distress which can possibly occur to the sufferer he must adopt the whole case of his companion with all its minutest incidents and strive to render as perfect as possible that imaginary change of situation upon which his sympathy is founded after all this however the emotions of the spectator will still be very apt to fall short of the violence of what is felt by the sufferer mankind though naturally sympathetic never conceive for what has befallen another that degree of passion which naturally animates the person principally concerned that imaginary change of situation upon which their sympathy is founded is but momentary the thought of their own safety the thought that they themselves are not really the sufferers continually intrudes itself upon them and though it does not hinder them from conceiving a passion somewhat analogous to what is felt by the sufferer hinders them from conceiving anything that approaches to the same degree of violence the person principally concerned is sensible of this and at the same time passionately desires a more complete sympathy he longs for that relief which nothing can afford him but the entire concord of the affections of the spectators with his own to see the emotions of their hearts in every respect beat time to his own in the violent and disagreeable passions constitutes his sole consolation but he can only hope to obtain this by lowering his passion to that pitch in which the spectators are capable of going along with him he must flatten if i may be allowed to say so the sharpness of its natural tone in order to reduce it to harmony and concord with the emotions of those who are about him what they feel will indeed always be in some respects different from what he feels and compassion can never be exactly the same with original sorrow because the secret consciousness that the change of situations from which the sympathetic sentiment arises is but imaginary not only lowers it in degree but in some measure varies it in kind and gives it a quite different modification these two sentiments however may it is evident have such a correspondence with one another as is sufficient for the harmony of society though they will never be unisons they may be concords and this is all that is wanted or required in order to produce this concord as nature teaches the spectators to assume the circumstances of the person principally concerned so she teaches this last in some measure to assume those of the spectators as they are continually placing themselves in his situation and thence conceiving emotions similar to what he feels so he is as constantly placing himself in theirs and thence conceiving some degree of that coolness about his own fortune with which he is sensible that they will view it as they are constantly considering what they themselves would feel if they actually were the sufferers so he is as constantly led to imagine in what manner he would be affected if he was only one of the spectators of his own situation as their sympathy makes them look at it in some measure with his eyes so his sympathy makes him look at it in some measure with theirs especially when in their presence and acting under their observation and as the reflected passion which he thus conceives is much weaker than the original one it necessarily abates the violence of what he felt before he came into their presence before he began to recollect in what manner they would be affected by it and to view his situation in this candid and impartial light the mind therefore is rarely so disturbed but that the company of a friend will restore it to some degree of tranquillity and sedateness 
The breast is in some measure calmed and composed the moment we come into his presence. We are immediately put in mind of the light in which he will view our situation, and we begin to view it ourselves in the same light, for the effect of sympathy is instantaneous. We expect less sympathy from a common acquaintance than from a friend. We cannot open to the former all those little circumstances which we can unfold to the latter. We assume, therefore, more tranquillity before him, and endeavor to fix our thoughts upon those general outlines of our situation which he is willing to consider. We expect still less sympathy from an assembly of strangers, and we assume, therefore, still more tranquillity before them, and always endeavor to bring down our passion to that pitch which the particular company we are in may be expected to go along with. Nor is this only an assumed appearance, for if we are at all masters of ourselves, the presence of a mere acquaintance will really compose us still more than that of a friend, and that of an assembly of strangers still more than that of an acquaintance. Society and conversation, therefore, are the most powerful remedies for restoring the mind to its tranquillity, if at any time it has unfortunately lost it, as well as the best preservatives of that equal and happy temper which is so necessary to self-satisfaction and enjoyment. Men of retirement and speculation, who are apt to sit brooding at home over either grief or resentment, Though they may often have more humanity, more generosity, and a nicer sense of honor, yet seldom possess that equality of temper which is so common among men of the world. Chapter 5 Of the Amiable and Respectable Virtues Upon these two different efforts, upon that of the spectator to enter into the sentiments of the person principally concerned, and upon that of the person principally concerned, to bring down his emotions to what the spectator can go along with, are founded two different sets of virtues. The soft, the gentle, the amiable virtues, the virtues of candid condescension and indulgent humanity, are founded upon the one, the great, the awful and respectable, the virtues of self-denial, of self-government, of that command of the passions which subjects all the movements of our nature to what our own dignity and honor and the propriety of our own conduct require, take their origin from the other. How amiable does he appear to be, whose sympathetic heart seems to re-echo all the sentiments of those with whom he converses, who grieves for their calamities, who resents their injuries, and who rejoices at their good fortune. When we bring home to ourselves the situation of his companions, we enter into their gratitude, and feel what consolation they must derive from the tender sympathy of so affectionate a friend. And for a contrary reason, how disagreeable does he appear to be, whose hard and obdurate heart feels for himself only, but is altogether insensible to the happiness or misery of others. We enter, in this case too, into the pain which his presence must give to every mortal with whom he converses, to those especially with whom we are most apt to sympathize, the unfortunate and the injured. On the other hand, what noble propriety and grace do we feel in the conduct of those who in their own case exert that recollection and self-command which constitute the dignity of every passion, and which bring it down to what others can enter into. We are disgusted with that clamorous grief 
which without any delicacy calls upon our compassion with sighs and tears and importunate lamentations, but we reverence that reserved, that silent and majestic sorrow, which discovers itself only in the swelling of the eyes, in the quivering of the lips and cheeks, and in the distant but affecting coldness of the whole behavior. It imposes the like silence upon us. We regard it with respectful attention, and watch with anxious concern over our whole behavior, lest by any impropriety we should disturb that concerted tranquillity which it requires so great an effort to support. The insolence and brutality of anger, in the same manner, when we indulge its fury without check or restraint, is of all objects the most detestable. But we admire that noble and generous resentment which governs its pursuit of the greatest injuries, not by the rage which they are apt to excite in the breast of the sufferer, but by the indignation which they naturally call forth in that of the impartial spectator, which allows no word, no gesture to escape it beyond what this more equitable sentiment would dictate, which never, even in thought, attempts any greater vengeance, nor desires to inflict any greater punishment than what every indifferent person would rejoice to see executed. And hence it is that to feel much for others and little for ourselves, that to restrain our selfish and to indulge our benevolent affections, constitutes the perfection of human nature, and can alone produce among mankind that harmony of sentiments and passions in which consists their whole grace and propriety. As to love our neighbor as we love ourselves is the great law of Christianity, so it is the great precept of nature to love ourselves only as we love our neighbor, or what comes to the same thing as our neighbor is capable of loving us. As taste and good judgment, when they are considered as qualities which deserve praise and admiration, are supposed to imply a delicacy of sentiment and an acuteness of understanding not commonly to be met with, so the virtues of sensibility and self-command are not apprehended to consist in the ordinary, but in the uncommon degrees of those qualities. The amiable virtue of humanity requires surely a sensibility much beyond what is possessed by the rude vulgar of mankind. The great and exalted virtue of magnanimity undoubtedly demands much more than that degree of self-command which the weakest of mortals is capable of exerting. As in the common degree of the intellectual qualities there is no abilities, so in the common degree of the moral there is no virtue. Virtue is excellence, something uncommonly great and beautiful, which rises far above what is vulgar and ordinary. The amiable virtues consist in that degree of sensibility which surprises by its exquisite and unexpected delicacy and tenderness. The awful and respectable, in that degree of self-command which astonishes by its amazing superiority over the most ungovernable passions of human nature. There is in this respect a considerable difference between virtue and mere propriety, between those qualities and actions which deserve to be admired and celebrated, and those which simply deserve to be approved of. 
upon many occasions to act with the most perfect propriety requires no more than that common and ordinary degree of sensibility or self-command which the most worthless of mankind are possessed of and sometimes even that degree is not necessary thus to give a very low instance to eat when we are hungry is certainly upon ordinary occasions perfectly right and proper and cannot miss being approved of as such by everybody nothing however could be more absurd than to say it was virtuous on the contrary there may frequently be a considerable degree of virtue in those actions which fall short of the most perfect propriety because they may still approach nearer to perfection than could well be expected upon occasions in which it was so extremely difficult to attain it and this is very often the case upon those occasions which require the greatest exertions of self-command there are some situations which bear so hard upon human nature that the greatest degree of self-government which can belong to so imperfect a creature as man is not able to stifle altogether the voice of human weakness or reduce the violence of the passions to that pitch of moderation in which the impartial spectator can entirely enter into them though in those cases therefore the behavior of the sufferer falls short of the most perfect propriety it may still deserve some applause and even in a certain sense may be denominated virtuous it may still manifest an effort of generosity and magnanimity of which the greater part of men are incapable and though it fails of absolute perfection it may be a much nearer approximation towards perfection than what upon such trying occasions is commonly either to be found or to be expected in cases of this kind when we are determining the degree of blame or applause which seems due to any action we very frequently make use of two different standards the first is the idea of complete propriety and perfection which in those difficult situations no human conduct ever did or ever can come up to and in comparison with which the actions of all men must forever appear blamable and imperfect the second is the idea of that degree of proximity or distance from this complete perfection which the actions of the greater part of men commonly arrive at whatever goes beyond this degree how far soever it may be removed from absolute perfection seems to deserve applause and whatever falls short of it to deserve blame it is in the same manner that we judge of the productions of all the arts which address themselves to the imagination when a critic examines the work of any of the great masters in poetry or painting he may sometimes examine it by an idea of perfection in his own mind which neither that nor any other human work will ever come up to and as long as he compares it with this standard he can see nothing in it but faults and imperfections but when he comes to consider the rank which it ought to hold among other works of the same kind he necessarily compares it with a very different standard the common degree of excellence which is usually attained in this particular art and when he judges of it by this new measure it may often appear to deserve the highest applause upon account of its approaching much nearer to perfection than the greater part of those works which can be brought into competition with it end of section two recording by ariadna solovyova